All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to say a warm welcome to Riverstone Church. And I am not talking to the building. I'm talking to you, the people of God that are part of our fellowship here in Yardley, PA. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. And this morning, I am planning to address a single topic that is not a part of our last series, which was on the church. And it is not the beginning of our new series, but it's one single message that we as the pastoral staff decided was important. And this morning, I'd like to talk about this very topic, and that is, why do Christians disagree over what's right and what's wrong, and what should we do about it? Recently, I heard a, a, a very humorous true story. A young boy was probably about seven years old, was in class one day, and his teacher said, we're going to study about Lima, Peru. And this little boy happened to know that that's not how you pronounce L-I-M-A, comma, Peru. It's Lima. So he said, it's not Lima, Peru. It's Lima, Peru. While the teacher didn't uh, agree with him, and she said, no, you're wrong. It's Lima, Peru. To which he said... I have an uncle and aunt who are missionaries there. It's Lima, Peru. And then the teacher, rather than conceding that perhaps she was wrong, said, well, there's actually two pronunciations to which the little boy said, yes, there are two, the right way and the wrong way. Now, I thought that was funny, not appropriate for, for, for a child to speak to an adult like that. But nevertheless, sometimes that sort of is how Christians interact with one another. And so this morning, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 14, because God has given us a passage in the Word of God that gives us a tremendous template, a framework for how to handle these things. Because Lord knows in these days, Christians have so many disagreements about everything under the sun, like whether we should be in masks or whether you should be here or not be here. But let's stick with this topic. Let me start by saying there are things that are morally right and wrong, and the Bible addresses them. There's no room for differing opinions on whether it's wrong to murder. The Bible says thou shalt not kill. There's no room for difference of opinions on whether it's okay to lie. These activities are clear, marked, moral issues of which God has either commanded us to do something or forbidden us from doing something. However, there are a great deal of areas in life to which the Bible does not give specific instructions. God does not command us about these things, nor does he forbid these things. And so Christians have learned that we're going to have differences about these things. And over the years, they have been called such things as matters of conscience or gray areas, not black and white, or what the church fathers used to call it, adiaphora, adiaphora, which meant indifferent, indifferent before God. In other words, these things are things that people can choose to either abstain from or not abstain from because the Bible does not specifically address them. Now, John Beagle and I I've talked some about this, and John actually did a brief cross-talk about this, and 
he allowed me to use a couple of the slides that he had. So I want to share um, a couple thoughts that John had that I've also taught on a number of times. But I want, to, I want us to, to now ask the question, what are some areas of adiaphora or what are these gray areas that we're talking about? Give me some examples, Tom, of, of these matters of conscience. So there's a million of them, something like this. Is it okay to drink alcohol? Some Christians would say, no, that's wrong. Other Christians would say, as long as it's in moderation. Well, frankly, the Bible does not clearly forbid the consumption of any alcohol. Another one would be smoking. Some Christians are absolutely sure that smoking is a black and white sin. The Bible says, don't, um, you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're defiling the Holy Spirit, and yet they're very inconsistent in that they eat in certain ways and stay up late and do things to their body that's also harmful. Um, listening to secular music. Some people say, if it's not Christian, it's of the devil. Whether or not you have to uh, rest on Sunday? Are you allowed to work on Sunday? That's a, an area of adiaphora. How about certain TV shows? If it's rated R, it's wrong. Well, is that necessarily something that the Bible says? How about homeschooling versus public school versus Christian school? Or what about Harry Potter? That has witchcraft. Some people would say that's wrong. Others wouldn't. Oh, and then here's a good one. How about tattoos? Tattoos are wrong. Well, actually, tattoos were forbidden under the Mosaic Law, but we're not under the Mosaic Law. And the same chapter that said you can't have a tattoo also said you can't wear a garment of two different materials. The list goes on and on. Some people say dancing is wrong. Dating is wrong. You should only have courtship. Or how about this one? You shouldn't use contraceptives. That's wrong. If God wants you to have kids, you know, birth control is wrong. Some people say, no, it's not wrong. In fact, People get bent out of shape over vaccines. Now, you can have an opinion on it, but you can't tell everybody it's right or wrong. But rather, these are areas of adiaphora. So, knowing that that's the case, the reason why Christians disagree over right and wrong is because there are areas that the Bible doesn't address, and we have to form our own opinions as best we can based on our conscience and what we understand at that point in our Christian experience. And it's a novel thought to some of you to think that perhaps your opinion, while it might differ from someone else's, may or, not be, may or may not be all conclusive. So, as we talk about these matters of conscience, these gray areas or these adiaphora, bearing in mind that there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't consider moral or immoral, one of the things that's important in, in, in starting off is recognizing that Christians do have liberty. They have the opportunity to choose to participate or not participate in certain areas that are gray areas. Now, that doesn't mean they should just run wild and do anything they want because this chapter will teach us that they need to be guided by conscience and then a great concern that they don't cause others to fall into sin or what the bible would call stumbling so if you have your bible and you turn with me now to romans chapter 14 we're only going to look at the first half of this chapter i want to encourage you to read the second half but for time's sake we're going to look at the first half but i'm going to pray over this and then we'll read this passage and then we're going to draw some conclusions father i pray that your holy spirit will speak to us and help us to recognize 
that there are areas that the Bible is not black and white on and that we must be taught by God through the Spirit and the Word how to engage with other Christians who disagree with us. Lord, may your word bear much fruit and may this passage be very helpful to your children as, as your followers, Lord. May you bring us closer to unity of the Spirit because we are obeying this passage in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this particular passage is a wonderful, what I'm going to call test case or template for us. If we were in court, we would call this exhibit A and B because this passage addresses two areas which are adiaphora. It addresses whether or not Christians should eat meat and whether or not Christians must keep the Sabbath, particularly the first one. Most people don't even discuss that anymore. But in the historical context, I want you to, to think about the background. You had Jewish people who were becoming Christians who were under the Mosaic law, who all of their lives had always abstained from food that was not kosher because the Mosaic law told them they cannot eat certain meats. So for that reason, some of them, when they became Christians, even though Jesus had changed that and pronounced all foods clean, they felt that anything other than kosher meat was wrong. But there was a second cultural thing going on in regards to meat that we read about in the New Testament, and that is much of the meat that was sold in the marketplace had been sacrificed to idols. And for that reason, some Christians felt that it would be absolutely wrong to eat it. So what we're going to find in this chapter is that there are some Christians who hold the opinion that they should not eat any meat. They should be vegetarian or vegan. They should simply eat vegetables. Well, there were other Christians who had a comprehension that it doesn't matter. You can eat meat if you want. There's another issue. The second exhibit, or exhibit B, is the issue of whether or not one has to keep the Sabbath, whether or not one has to rest on the Sabbath, whether or not, Benjamin, there's people at the door waiting to get in. So, whether or not one has to rest on the Sabbath. Now, those two templates become the, the, the issues for which Paul will address Christians, and all of us need to think about this. Regardless of what your opinion is on drinking or politics or the coronavirus or on masks or on worship or on these issues, we need to pay attention to what this passage says. So let's read it, and then we're going to draw out some implications. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. Now, first of all, what does he mean by weak in faith? He's going to go on and he's going to explain that a person who is very strict and restricted in areas of adiaphora and gray areas, while they might feel that they're very strong, are actually what Paul would call weak in faith. They have not matured in their Christian faith enough to understand that there are a lot of things that are not black and white. And while they may think it's wrong, it's not wrong in and of itself. So actually, people who are weak in faith often think the opposite. The very strict person who says, you can't dance, you can't drink alcohol, you can't go to the movies, 
You can't do this. You can't do that. They think that they're the strong one, but Paul says, no, actually, they're weak in faith. They don't understand the fullness of Christian liberty. However, Paul tells the Christians to accept them. And that word there has the idea of welcoming them, bringing them into your acquaintance. It's as though you're saying, come on into my home. Be a part of our fellowship. So, so what do I do with a Christian who has different opinions, especially if I think that they're legalistic? Well, number one, I need to accept them. But as I accept them, Paul says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. As I welcome them into the fellowship, it's very dangerous when Christians begin to engage in verbal conflicts and try to persuade people how wrong they are. So it says, don't pass judgment on their opinions. Now this word opinion, every other time it's translated in the New Testament, it has a negative connotation of doubts and, and reasonings that arise from doubt. So it might even be okay to translate this, not for the purpose of judging someone on his doubts about certain matters. But then he says this, one man has faith that he may eat all things. Now notice in the template then, a person who has a broader perspective on Christian liberty is actually what Paul would consider a person that has more faith. But, Paul says, he who is weak eats vegetables only. So I have to understand that there are some people who have not grasped the idea of gray areas, and so for them, they might say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And while we might say, the Bible doesn't say that, I mustn't judge them and pass judgment on their opinions. On the other hand, the Bible says, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Now, this is interesting, because these are not the same attitudes. So the person who understands gray areas might be inclined to have a judgmental spirit towards the weaker brother and say, oh, come on, come on, it's, let, me, let me show you why you're wrong. That's judging his opinions. But he could also have a very critical spirit. So notice what it says here. Let not him who eats regard with contempt. The word to regard with contempt here means to treat with disdain, to, to reject disdainfully, to treat with contempt, to treat the issue or the person as though they have no merit. Now, not that you've ever heard people say something like when a person shares their opinion, that's ridiculous, or seriously, or those people are idiots, or that's so stupid. This is exactly what this passage is talking about. If a Christian feel something is wrong even though you're convinced it's not don't treat them with contempt as though they're foolish idiots and here's why paul says for god has accepted him so then he, he turns it around and he says you know you got two christians that are disagreeing over issues the weaker brother is judgmental saying he's a bad christian because he eats meat the stronger brother's going he's an idiot he's a moron and Paul goes, both of you need to stop it. And here's why. You are not God. Neither one of you answer to one another primarily 
You answer to God. So let's look how he unfolds this. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and stand he will. In other words, if, if I was working in a field and I saw another man's servant working in a field and I said to him, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Hey, I'm not his boss. You don't tell someone who's your colleague at work, don't do this, don't do that. That's the, the, the boss's role. In the same way as a Christian, the Bible says, we're not supposed to be one another's master. The Lord is our master and he's able to make us stand. Look at verse five. Now Paul news moves to the next issue, the issue of the Sabbath. One man regards one day above another. In other words, some Christians truly believe that you should not work on, on the Sabbath. You should not go to restaurants, that this should be a day of rest. And that's fine. Paul says, but another regards every day. In other words, some people would say, every day I treat as the Lord's day. Not that I rest, but I worship and serve God on each day. So now Paul gives us a guiding principle. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Now having said that, I want to go back to the big picture. Why do Christians disagree? Because some things are not black and white. And so while we might be both convinced in our own mind, we have to recognize we might have a different opinion. So when it comes to gray areas, what's right for one person may not be right for another person. Each person has to individually, before God, think through in their conscience, do they feel this is wrong? So Paul goes on to outline this. He says, he who observes the day, in other words, who decides that they're going to keep the Sabbath, he observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, the brother who eats meat, in other words, he does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat, the guy who says, no, no, I can't eat meat. He says, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. I think the point Paul is making here is simply this, that I shouldn't be judging what other people are doing if the Bible doesn't address it. Give them the benefit of the doubt that if they're a Christian, then they're trying to do what they think is right before God. So Paul goes on to tell us this as Christians, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. Now, I think here he's limiting this to Christians because the essence of being an unbeliever is to live for yourself. The essence of becoming a Christian is I die to myself by the grace of God through the work of Christ, and then I begin to live my life unto the Lord. Do we do it well? Do we do it always? No, but there should be a marked Transference of, of, transference of what I'm living for. In other words, the Bible's clear that Jesus didn't just die for our sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, he died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And so Paul's reminding us that each one of us as brothers and sisters who have different opinions are supposed to be living for the Lord. Verse 8, for if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. 
For to this end, Christ died and lived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Well, again, I want you to just stop and think about that. Jesus did not just die to forgive us for our sins. He died to purchase us with his blood because he loved us. He died to free us from our sins. He died to bring us to himself so that one day we'll spend eternity worshiping and serving him. But in this life, we learn that he died for us so that we would live for him. We used to sing a song, I'll live for him who died for me. And so as we think this through, we're like, yeah, that's, that's what's most important, not what this guy's doing, what that guy's doing, but am I, am I living for the Lord? And if he has a different opinion on something, maybe that's between him and the Lord. So Paul begins to wind down this first argument in verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? So if you say, hey, that guy had a beer, he's sinning. Wait, why are you judging your brother? He has a cigarette. He's probably not a Christian. Why are you judging your brother? He voted in such and such a way. He can't be a Christian. Why are you judging your brother? Or if you're going, idiots, these people are drinking the Kool-Aid, stupid, why are they so foolish? If that's your attitude, why do you regard your brother with contempt? I'm going I'm to say this, and if the shoe fits, please wear it. But when I hear Christians say, I'm not going to that church because those idiots are wearing masks. If you do that, can I tell you that I think that's sin? I think that's exactly what this passage is talking about. People who have this judgmental spirit toward others who have a different opinion. The Bible says we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. This idea of a judgment seat was a raised seat that in, in the New Testament times, not just God, but kings and judges at the Olympics, they had this raised stand called a bema seat. You would walk up the steps and sit on a chair and then you would, you would form your judgment and this is what God's going to do. The most important thing is one day we all have to stand before God. If you're listening to this, I promise you one day you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. The Bible says it's an appointed unto man once to die, then comes judgment. So for some of you, you need to ask yourself, am I ready for that? If I stood before God right now and he was to judge whether or not I should be in heaven or hell, and he would ask you, what would you say if you go, Oh, I would tell him I'm a good person. I would tell him, you know, that I've never really tried my best. Then, then I, can, I, can I warn you soberly from the Bible that you will never make it to heaven? Because if you think that you deserve to get into heaven because you're good enough, you're severely misled. The Bible's very clear that none of us deserves heaven, but Jesus died for sinners. And the first qualification for entrance to heaven is to admit that you're a sinner and that you don't deserve salvation, but that Jesus died in our place and shed his blood and said, it is finished so that we can have the free gift of forgiveness and salvation that we receive by faith. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never believed that what Jesus did on the cross was enough for your forgiveness, then come to him now give your life to Christ, turn from whatever it is that's keeping you from trusting Christ, 
and you will be pardoned and forgiven, and at the judgment day, you will be welcomed into heaven. But for all of us who have already been saved by God's grace, for those of us who have made that decision and we know that we're forgiven, we will still stand before the judgment seat of God. We will still be evaluated for our Christian experience after we're saved. This does not determine whether or not we go to heaven, but this determines our rewards, and this also determines whether or not the Lord Jesus is going to welcome us and say, good and faithful servant, and there's an abundant entrance, or 1 John warns against Christians who, who are so careless with their lifestyle. He says, my little children abide in Christ so that when he comes, you'll have confidence and not shrink away in shame. So that's not this destined to design to scare us that Jesus is mean or scary, but it should sober us to say, listen, the way I treat other people matters to God. And if I'm judging them or treating them with contempt, first of all, that's a bad idea because they're going to stand before their own master and then I have to give an account to God for the way I've treated people as well. So having said all that, let's, let's ask ourselves a question. How then should I respond to Christians who have different opinions on politics, coronavirus, or anything that the Bible does not clearly address? Now, there are some nuances to that. For example, I believe the Bible clearly addresses the issue of abortion. And I believe that abortion is wrong. I don't think that's a gray area. And if there are political platforms that endorse that, then that's something that you have to take in mind. But in a broader sense, to simply say, oh, if you're a Democrat, you're this, or if you're a Republican, you're that, that's not helpful, nor is it biblical. So, in summary, there's a book written by a man named Andy Nacelli. He's a pastor connected with John Piper's ministry. He wrote a book on conscience based on this chapter, and he actually had 12 things to do here. I'm going to narrow it down to just five things that I think would be helpful here for us to think about. Number one, it says in verse one, we should accept people who have a different opinion. That word means to welcome them. And in fact, it's the same word that's used later in the passage when it says in verse 3, God has accepted him. If you come to Jesus as a broken sinner and you admit that you need Christ, you believe that he died and rose again, he welcomes you, he accepts you. So we need to treat people with a sense of acceptance. We're not just tolerating them. We welcome them. We love them. They're our brothers and sisters. The second thing I need to understand is that I need to avoid two sinful attitudes. When, when I disagree with someone on an adiaph or a gray area, there's two sinful attitudes that I must avoid. Number one, I must avoid looking down on people whose conscience is weaker. I must avoid looking down on them and being very judgmental. I mustn't call them idiots or legalistic Christians. I want to try to treat them with respect, to try to understand where they're coming from. The other attitude I need to avoid is not just being judgmental, but also treating people with contempt. I must avoid this 
they're idiots, they're stupid, they're morons. I'm not going there. We really need to stop that. That's sinful. And God's calling you and me as Christians, if you're doing that, to repent from that. If you're a Christian, I'm reproving you in love in the name of Jesus. If you're speaking that way, and God's calling us to do better than that. The Bible says in Titus 3, remember that we ourselves were most deceived and disobedient. So we should speak evil of no man, but be gentle and reasonable and considerate. The third thing we need to understand here is when it comes to these gray areas, we must be fully convinced of our own position in our own conscience. Look at verse 5. Be convinced in your own mind. Don't take your cues from other Christians. One Christian may say it's okay to drink alcohol, but it may not be okay for you. One person may say, I think I can do this. If the Bible doesn't address it, that doesn't mean you can do it. You have to determine in your own conscience, can I freely do that with a good conscience before the Lord? Or do I believe in my heart of hearts that if I do that, I would be sinning? If you think something is wrong, then the Bible says, don't do it. If in doubt, don't. The fourth thing to consider is to remember that one day God will judge people, not us. God will judge people. It's not my job to judge people. Let's leave that with the Lord. We'll all stand before the Lord. He knows our motives. He knows what's going on. We can give people the benefit of the doubt that whether they're abstaining or whether they're participating, Paul says they're, they're doing it unto the Lord. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to leave those four but now I want to draw out some applications. Remember that in the history of the church, these gray areas have always had the potential to divide the church. I mean, there are Christians who believe if you don't use the King James Bible, you're not welcome in their fellowship. And on and on it goes. But today, more than ever, perhaps, I think that we really need to apply this passage to the whole idea of politics and the coronavirus because people have very strong opinions on these things. And it looks to me like Satan is using these disagreements to split churches. Some people are leaving churches because enough is not being said to support the Republican Party. Other people are leaving churches because something's being said to support the Republican Party. And on and on it goes about race and all of these other things. We need to be more tolerant. We need to be more willing to listen. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.3, a fool doesn't want to understand other people's opinions. He just wants to air his own opinion. So with that in mind, let's recognize that, number one, Christians have different opinions. And there's a complexity to political things that does not always make it easy. I want to recommend Andy Nicelli's book. He has a book on um, this whole subject called politics conscience and the church why christians passionately disagree with one another over politics and in that book he says something that's really interesting he said there are many things in the bible that there's a straight line from the bible to today like abortion and murder but there are other things in which there it's a jagged line your view of immigration your policies on taxes or welfare things like that there's room for disagreement and so as christians we need to learn how to listen and, and to and to be tolerant of people who hold different opinions so 
the only other thing I want to address here, I hope that this is helpful for you and whatever you're wrestling with, you may have an opinion on the masks or the not mask or whether we should be in the building or not in the building or whether the coronavirus is a hoax or whether the coronavirus is real. But if the Bible doesn't clearly address it, we need to welcome people who have a different opinion, not judging them or regarding them with contempt, recognize that we're all gonna stand before God. Now I do encourage you to read the rest of this chapter because while we may have liberty to participate in certain freedoms because the Bible doesn't address it, there are times that it's better to abstain because you might cause someone else to violate their conscience. So be sure to read the rest of the chapter. We don't have time for it at this point. But I want to address one more thing here before we go. And that is the whole idea that not only do I hear this quite frequently, Christians experiencing strong opinions, I was just talking to someone from another church that like some people are like, I'm not going to that church. I'm not doing this because they're not doing that. May I remind you, if you're a Christian, the Bible tells you as a believer to be part of a local assembly. So if you're not part of any local assembly, I can tell you that, that you are just wandering. The Bible teaches us to get connected to a local fellowship. Don't just go anywhere you want like a giant Bible conference. Get plugged in. But then the Bible says, don't forsake assembling with other Christians. Be consistent. But then it says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. As we're beginning to move into the building as we're beginning to talk about masks and children's ministry and things like this, please, more than ever, want to ask you to pray and be unified and be humble and be gracious. And when you hear people being negative and being critical and saying, I'm not doing this and those are idiots and we're not doing that, gently show them from the Bible. Speak the word of the gospel into their lives and encourage them to consider that that attitude, that mindset, number one, is not submissive to leaders, which is commanded by God, nor is it submissive to God, nor is it loving or charitable, nor is it productive for the body of Christ. So I hope that this passage of scripture becomes a great template for you as you think through some of these difficult issues in life that the Bible does not clearly address. God bless you and may the grace of God keep us together and may we grow in the love of the Spirit, reaching more and more people for Christ. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray that your word will bear fruit and that this passage will cause us to think carefully before we speak on matters that the Bible is not 100% clear. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the body of Christ. Help us to move forward in love and unity. And may many more people come to Christ. We pray, Father, that politics will not divide us, that our opinions over the coronavirus will not divide us, but that more than ever, we will be a unified, submissive, humble body of Christ seeking to glorify you. Thank you, Lord, for drawing people to yourself. Maybe this morning, someone is giving their life to Christ by faith. If that's you, please call us and let us know. Email us, come and talk to us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a prayerful, godly week.